To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. How do I apply Roundup Weed and Grass Killer products? Using Roundup Weed and Grass Killer products right is key to maximizing their effectiveness and safety. But plaintiffs say that Roundup is not safe, and Bayer has gotten hammered by jury verdicts totaling almost $4 billion in the last three months. And the company's latest courtroom loss was its biggest since Roundup cases started going to trial about five years ago. A Pennsylvania jury awarded $2.25 billion to a former Roundup user who blamed his cancer diagnosis on long-term use of the herbicide. And $2 billion was in punitive damages designed to punish Bayer. The long-running litigation with more than 50,000 Roundup cases still outstanding has caused some investors to call for a change in Bayer's litigation strategy. But its options seem limited. Joining me is an expert in mass tort litigation, Elizabeth Birch, a professor at the University of Georgia Law School. The long-running litigation with more than 50,000 Roundup cases still outstanding has caused some investors to call for a change in Bayer's litigation strategy. But the problem is, its options are very limited. Joining me is an expert in mass tort litigation, Elizabeth Birch, a professor at the University of Georgia Law School. So, Elizabeth, this latest Bayer verdict was its biggest ever, more than $2 billion. Aren't companies supposed to learn as litigation goes on and be able to refine and improve their strategy? One would certainly hope so, although I think, you know, Bayer would probably mention that they've won 10 of the last 16 trials. I think their hope certainly is to try to get a case like this reversed on appeal. And there is some precedent for that in the past. Back in 2019, a California jury awarded roughly $2.05 billion in damages that ended up getting slashed to $87 million. So still a lot of money, but certainly not money with a B. Bayer's vowed to appeal, expressed confidence that it will prevail, and it says it's not giving up as far as trying cases. But what is its strategy? Because it did spend about $10 billion on settling 150,000 cases. You're right. It absolutely did. And it also indicated... I think a year or two ago, that it was planning to pull Roundup off the market in the next couple of years. I think the hope being that at some point these cases will stop. But the difficulty that Bayer is facing is that there's a long gap between exposure to Roundup and then the potential for developing some sort of a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or a different type of cancer in these types of cases. So it's really hard to say, you know, even if we were to pull Roundup off the market tomorrow, when the litigation might end. You know, when they contemplated taking it off the market and indicated that they were going to take it off the market in the future, they were trying to come up with something that was equally effective at killing weeds. And that was going to take some time to develop, was my understanding. So I think they're trying to have some sort of replacement for it as soon as they pull it from the shelves. So Bayer is facing now 10 trials are expected this year in state courts. 
It says the company is committed to trying Roundup cases based on the strength of the science, favorable regulatory assessments worldwide, and a proven record of success at trial. It was successful until I think it was October when plaintiffs started racking up victories in California, Missouri, and Pennsylvania state courts. Did something happen where the cases started to turn against Bayer? You know, it's hard to pinpoint a particular sea change. They were certainly successful in settling a bulk of those cases through what's known as the multi-district litigation process. That's at the federal level. But where they're really facing pressure now is at the state level, particularly in jurisdictions like Philadelphia. You know, I think every case is probably unique in the sense that you're really highlighting the facts of your particular client. And I think what we see in this latest case is not just the use of kind of garden variety roundup on a half acre plot of land, but sustained use over a fairly large plot of land, multiple acres and many, many gallons of roundup sprayed at a time. So you really do see a high volume of exposure. And it's possible that the cases that have been lost are cases with more casual use. And Bayer is pursuing another legal strategy with regard to those state cases. It's trying to convince appeals courts that federal law preempts state claims. Well, um, the preemption question has been out there for a long time. It's not something that they've been successful on thus far. And so, you know, I think that that's still a really open question that remains to be seen, but they haven't gotten a lot of traction with it. And there is contradictory scientific evidence introduced in these cases and differing opinions from agencies about whether the chemical in Roundup is a carcinogen. That's correct. And I think that's part of what juries might be struggling with and and maybe the reason for the 10 wins that they've had at trial. So back in 2015, part of the World Health Organization called the International Agency for Research on Cancer classified the chemical that's used in Roundup glycophosphate as part of a chemical that is probably carcinogenic in humans. But the EPA back in 2010 said there were no risks to human health. So we really have some conflicting findings between different organizations. And yet despite those conflicting findings, the bulk of these awards are punitive damages meant to punish Bayer. Yeah, I mean, you know, the juries are not happy with the evidence that they hear. There is evidence that they are wanting to punish the company. So this isn't just sort of a slap on the wrist, let's compensate the victim type of damage award. This is a you've done something really wrong and we're angry about it kind of award. You know, I think what we see oftentimes is in the headlines, we get these astronomical verdicts because they are so newsworthy. But it's important to remember that in about 80 percent of the cases, judges and juries actually agree on what the amount should be. And so when you see verdicts like this, they aren't necessarily the run of the mill cases. As you mentioned, Bayer has touted its previous success in getting these awards knocked down. It points to three cases before 2020 where verdicts totaling more than $1.4 billion were knocked down to $132 million. That's a reduction of nearly 95 percent. These appellate court reductions stem from Supreme Court guidance. Tell us about that. The Supreme Court back in the 90s decided several cases, a trilogy of cases on punitive damages that capped essentially capped the ratio between compensatory damages and punitive damages is no greater than nine to one. Now, there can certainly be some exceptions to that. 
But in general, the Supreme Court has weighed in, so this is what we think would be appropriate. But the Supreme Court really has not gotten involved in these types of mass tort settlements. In fact, the closest that we've really seen recently has been the argument in front of the Supreme Court over the Purdue Pharma case, where the Sackler family is trying to free ride on the bankruptcy of Purdue to avoid civil liability for the opioid epidemic. What about negotiating a global settlement? Is that a possibility for Bayer? I think it's going to be really difficult for them at this point. They certainly tried to negotiate a global settlement several years ago when they tried to certify these cases as a class action in federal court. That was a move that was denied by the judge in the federal multi-district litigation. It would be really difficult, I think, without plaintiff's consent and plaintiff's attorney's consent to get any sort of a global settlement given that we're now looking at individual state court litigation. And as you mentioned, a settlement couldn't cover future cases that are going to be filed because Roundup is still on the market. Exactly. So you can't sue just because you've been exposed to a chemical. You can only sue once something has manifested, some sort of injury has manifested, which means that if it takes some you know, 10 to 14 years between the exposure to the product and the development of the disease, that we're going to be looking at these types of lawsuits for many years to come. But plaintiffs who sue in the future, are they on notice of the possible cancer-causing agents in Roundup? So this is one of the questions that we'll have to see in the future. You know, the, the cases that we're seeing right now don't have notice about this potential for cancer. But in tort law, there's something called the assumption of the risk and uh, defense called comparative fault which means, you know, for example, that if you're a smoker and you've been smoking for a long time, but you know that smoking can cause lung cancer, then you bear some sort of fault in continuing to smoke. So we may see defenses like that becoming more successful in the future. Also, Bayer already increased its litigation fund from $11.6 billion to $16 billion in 2021, but the lawsuits keep piling up. Does it even have enough in its litigation coffers to cover the verdicts and settlements, et cetera? Well, I mean, that certainly remains to be seen. No money goes to the victims while cases are on appeal. And as you know, appeals can last for a couple of years. So certainly there's that question if Bayer is going to continue to face these types of billion-dollar verdicts, whether at some point it's going to become an issue But they haven't indicated that they are considering filing for bankruptcy, to my knowledge. The shareholders are certainly watching this. So this is a litigation that is the thorn in the side of Bayer. Can the Roundup litigation be compared to Johnson & Johnson's talc litigation? It is similar. Like Roundup, there is a latency period in talc, particularly between the exposure to talc. Some would say that exposure to talc laced with asbestos between the exposure and the development of the disease. So I think both Johnson & Johnson in the tout cases and Bayer in the Roundup cases are struggling with how do we get closure in a case like this where there are likely to be many more cases in the pipeline for years to come. If you were advising Bayer, how would you advise them to handle all these cases? (laughs) I mean, try to settle. I mean, it's a real problem. Um, There's not a way to get any kind of global resolution based on the types of things that we know now. So the easiest way to try to do something like that would be to file bankruptcy. 
but Bayer has not indicated that I know of that they have any sort of plans of filing bankruptcy in the future. But in order to try to get rid of state and federal cases and any kind of holistic settlement, most defendants are looking at bankruptcy. Thanks so much for those insights, Elizabeth. That's Professor Elizabeth Birch of the University of Georgia Law School. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll look at some possible grounds for Trump's appeal of the $83.3 million defamation verdict. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before last Friday, Donald Trump used to frequently rail against advice columnist E. Jean Carroll even after he was found guilty of sexually abusing her. And I'm going to explain. I don't know who the hell she is. I have no idea. They called me up years ago and they said, do you know about this woman 25 or 30 years ago? She doesn't even know the date, the time, the month, the season. She has no idea. But Trump didn't get to explain that or much of anything else at the defamation trial. And since a jury delivered a stunning $83.3 million verdict, there has been, perhaps just as stunning, silence from the former president on E. Jean Carroll. It took only three hours of deliberations for a Manhattan federal jury to return the verdict that Trump defamed Carroll. Trump called the verdict absolutely ridiculous, as did his attorney, Alina Haba. We will immediately appeal. We will set aside that ridiculous jury. But it will take more than filing papers to appeal the verdict. Trump will need to put up a hefty amount of cash if he doesn't secure a bond. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Bob, Trump's behavior in the courtroom was, by all accounts, off the charts, muttering as Carol testified, sparring with the judge who threatened to kick him out of the courtroom. 
and this drama of storming out of the courtroom during the closing arguments. E. Jean Carroll's attorney, Roberta Kaplan, has said in an interview with Politico that it was Trump's own behavior that convicted him. Well, I think that it did, because what typically happens is that jurors form a bond with the presiding judge. The judge has time to talk to them during the trial. He sometimes will make general small talk with them while they're waiting for the trial to begin. And they form a bond with the judge and they look to the judge as the arbiter of how this proceeding ought to go forward. They see that the judge controls the courtroom, the judge makes the decisions, and if jurors see a defense lawyer or a defendant acting in a way that seems to disrespect the judge and disrespect the process, often juries will find that distasteful and that's not good for the outcome of the defendant. And his behavior also played into Kaplan's closing arguments. She argued that Trump acted as if the law didn't apply to him, and this trial was to punish him and to get him to stop once and for all. And the jury listened. It came back with an award of $65 million in punitive damages to punish Trump and deter him from defaming her in the future. No, that's exactly right. From the plaintiff's side of the case, this couldn't have played out any better, because what the plaintiff's lawyer was arguing is that Mr. Trump was asserting the rules that apply to everybody else do not apply to him. And rather than sit there stoically in the courtroom when these accusations were being made against him, even though they were extremely distasteful, his conduct suggested very much what the plaintiffs were arguing here, which is that he does not believe that the rules did apply to him. So in many ways, he reinforced exactly the theme that the plaintiff's lawyers were trying to establish throughout the trial. In the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial, you had Judge Arthur Angoron, who seemed to be a little more laissez-faire in the courtroom. But in this trial, you had Judge Lewis Kaplan, who is known for being very strict about keeping order and decorum in the courtroom. And even he couldn't rein in Trump completely. What does that say about Trump's future behavior at the criminal trials he's facing? And those are trials where he'll have to be in the courtroom every day. Do you think it's even possible for him to sort of behave like a normal defendant? Well, that's a good question. And you make a good point that this is a civil case. And so former President Trump was not required to attend. But in a criminal case, he does have to be there for every day and every moment of the proceeding. And that means, as a defense lawyer, you have to instruct your client to control themselves during the proceeding because you remember that jurors are constantly looking at the defendant throughout a trial. They're not only listening to the testimony coming from the witness stand, they're not only listening to the arguments of the lawyers during the trial, but they are looking at both the plaintiff and the defendant, or in a criminal case, both the prosecution and the defendant, to gauge their reactions to the testimony. So a defendant is always on in that respect, in that jurors are watching them, looking at their reactions, and that ultimately factors into how they make their decisions. Trump says they're going to appeal, and I'm wondering what the appellate issues might be. The judge did severely limit his defense and what he could say on the stand. Is that a possible argument on appeal? Well, I certainly think it will be one of the issues raised on appeal, because the key ruling in this case that came before the trial started when Judge Kaplan ordered former President Trump's legal team not to attempt to argue in court that he didn't sexually assault Eugene Carroll. That was really one of the critical arguments that the defense wanted to make in this case. 
And Judge Kaplan said that that would essentially be a do-over of the first trial, which he lost in May when a jury found him liable for sexually abusing Carol more than two decades ago. And in that trial, there was $5 million that was awarded. So by taking that argument away, it essentially prevented former President Trump from denying the allegations that were at the heart of this case. Trial number two, which is the trial that was just concluded, was simply about the question of damages. And it was very difficult for the defense to control their client because you have there a defendant, former President Trump, who continues to deny that he sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll or that he even knew E. Jean Carroll. And that was the defense they wanted to argue, but the court said they couldn't. They still got that in. Former President Trump took the stand for about three minutes and denied the underlying sexual assault. But the jury was immediately instructed by the judge to disregard that testimony. And whenever a judge instructs a jury to disregard testimony from a defendant or a witness or to disregard arguments made by a lawyer, that undermines the credibility of that witness or that lawyer with the jury. And that's never a good thing. Bob, what are some other appellate issues Trump might raise? Judge Kaplan made a number of significant pretrial rulings that really hemmed in the defense here, which will likely form the basis of an appeal. He barred Trump and his lawyers from making arguments at trial concerning Carol's choice of lawyer and the fact that her litigation was financed by somebody with close ties to the Democratic Party. He also barred the defense team from presenting arguments concerning Ms. Carol's past romantic relationship and really prevented the defense from focusing on E. Jean Carroll and more focusing on the statements that were made by former President Trump. Now, the heart of the defense here at this trial was ultimately that the statements made by former President Trump did not actually damage her reputation, but enhanced it. So the defense argued that E. Jean Carroll was essentially down on her luck, that the money she was making as an advice columnist had essentially dried up and that she made these claims only to try to restart her career, and that ultimately, by making this statement, she actually became more famous and actually increased her reputation and her earning capacity. Ultimately, the jury did not accept that. They were able to hear testimony about threats that were made against her, and obviously, the falsity of those statements was something that they took into account in terms of reaching their verdict here. But those will be issues that I expect will be raised on appeal as well. And Trump might also raise on appeal the damages calculation that Trump wanted the judge to instruct the jury on, but he refused. One of the other interesting arguments raised by the defense on the question of damages was whether or not the court should adopt a gross versus net view of the damages. In other words, the defense was arguing that even if the statements were defamatory, the court needed to look at the total impact of those statements to determine damages. So in other words, it's possible, they argued, that a defendant could make a defamatory statement that injured someone's reputation in one part of the community, but actually enhanced it in another. Bob, what about the disparity in the two E. Jean Carroll verdicts? 
I'm wondering if that poses an issue on appeal, because it was another jury, as you say, who made the decision that Trump was liable for sexually abusing Carol. That jury awarded $5 million. The second jury, who didn't hear that evidence, but rather heard the judge who, as you mentioned before, a figure of authority that the jury usually believes, and he said that Trump did sexually assault Carol, and he said that more than once in different ways. And then this jury awards Carol $83.3 million. That's more than 16 times the award of the first jury. Is there any problem with the contrast in those two verdicts? Well, the appeals court will probably look at these two cases. The difference between case number one and case number two is that case number one that went to trial in 2019 was about statements that were made by former President Trump after he left office. The reason there were two trials here is because there were statements that were made by former President Trump while he was president. That was tied up in appeals as the former president's legal team argued that he had immunity for those statements. So it's possible that an appeals court could say that defamatory statements that were made by somebody while they were president carried even more weight than statements made when they were a former president. But they will be looking at the juxtaposition of those two verdicts and those two awards to determine whether this $83 million verdict is excessive. By the way, Trump says he's looking for new attorneys to represent him in the appeal. And in order to appeal, he has to put up cash to secure the verdict or get a bond. Explain the process. Sure. So former President Trump is appealing both verdicts, the earlier verdict for $5 million, now this one for $83 million. And he has two options, basically. He can pay the money into the court system, which is what he did for the $5 million verdict. He simply paid that into the court system, and that money is held by the court while the appeal is pending. Alternatively, he can try to secure an appeal bond, which would save him from having to pay the full amount into the court. What that would do would be to essentially assure Ms. Carroll that Mr. Trump has the money to pay if ultimately he's unsuccessful on appeal, but it prevents them from collecting the money while the appeals are being heard. The problem with getting a bond in this circumstance is that former President Trump has to find a company willing to write a bond when he's facing other significant legal jeopardy. And the value of the bond is likely to be about 110% of the verdict, which would mean he would need a $92 million bond. And he also would have to pay the bonding company a substantial premium And there's also a question of what collateral he would have to put up. He might not be able, for example, to post properties as collateral. The bonding company might demand that he pledge liquid assets, such as certificates of deposit or treasury bonds. So although the bonding option is certainly available, and he may avail himself of that given the size of this verdict, it's not going to be that easy to get a bond in this circumstance. He does seem to have the cash to put up. The Bloomberg Billionaires Index places his liquid assets at about $600 million. And at a deposition last year, Trump described his cash as substantially in excess of $400 million. So he has enough to cover it if he wants to. Although there is also that verdict in New York's $370 million civil fraud trial against him. And that's now expected by mid-February. So we'll see what he does. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter and English. Coming up next, a suit over a supposedly AI-generated comedy special featuring the late George Carlin. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start off with a heartfelt apology. I'm sorry it took me so long to come out with new material, but I I do have a pretty good excuse. I was dead. (laughs) It may sound like George Carlin, but it's not. In fact, when podcasters Will Sasso and Chad Colchin released the hour-long comedy special called George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead... They build it as created from generative AI technology trained on decades of the late comedian's material. So Carlin's estate sued the duo for infringing his copyright and illegally using his name and likeness. But then came the twist. The podcasters are now claiming that the special was actually written by a human, one of the podcasters. And that changes up what's at stake in the lawsuit. If it sounds confusing, it is. But it's happened before. Joining me is Zian Tang, a professor at UCLA Law School. Let's start with the first iteration of this, which was supposed to be AI-generated. Tell us about that. The claim that was at the center of the complaint was that the comedians Will Sasso and Chad Colchin had fed thousands of hours of copyrighted material from George Carlin into an AI model. And then once that AI model had been trained on all that Carlin material, it was able to fit out or generate a entirely new comedy routine based off of Carlin's jokes. And in the lawsuit by Carlin's estate, they're making two different claims, one based on copyright and the other on the illegal use of Carlin's name and likeness. So it would be a copyright claim in the sense that 
there was a lot of copyrighted content that was fed into the large language model, the LLM, which resulted in a copy of the material being made while the LLM was being trained. So that's one claim. And then the right of publicity claim is based off of the replication of the comedian's voice, which, you know, are both claims that have been lodged against AI or generative AI companies for the past year, both on the training data, which a number of similar lawsuits, many of them class actions, have been making the same claims with regard to the training of LLMs based on copyrighted books, for example, or copyrighted comedy routines. There's, for example, one currently pending in federal court filed by the comedian Sarah Silverman representing herself and an entire class of plaintiffs, the complaint alleges, whose material have all been copied into the LLM. And then on the right of publicity claim, there's been similar allegations made against AIs, such as the Drake Weekend mashup that went viral a few months ago, in which the AI basically is, is trained on a celebrity's voice and then is able to you know, generate an entirely new work, a new song, but using that voice. Now, have any of these lawsuits progressed to the point where there's been a legal opinion about whether this is a violation of copyright? So, no. There have been some courts that have issued opinions that have basically denied or dismissed certain claims filed by the plaintiffs, but certainly no opinion issued by a court that has definitively answered the question of whether or not the use of copyrighted material as training data for the AIs constitutes copyright infringement or, and even if it is technically copyright infringement in the sense that there is a copy being made when the material is ingested, whether that copying is protected by the defense of fair use. You study this, you teach this. What's your opinion? I think it's a deeply complicated issue. I certainly think that there is a line of cases that have preceded this based on, for example, whether or not it is fair use for Google to scan massive amounts of copyrighted books in order to create their Google Books function, which I think a lot of us use, in which you can search within books and it'll return snippets of, in many cases, copyrighted books. And it's helpful for researchers to be able to search within books, many of which are out of print. Now, those prior decisions have held that such uses are fair, even if they're technical copyright infringements, they're still protected by fair use because they are transformative technologically transformative uses of copyrighted works because they are using the copyrighted works for a wholly different purpose. I think in this case, similar arguments could certainly be made, and I could see certain judges making that determination based on the transformative nature of what AI does and the fact that maybe what you would argue is true to the name training data the LLM, the large language model, is simply learning from the copyrighted material, not to wholly reproduce the copyrighted material on the output side, but instead to create a wholly new transformative work. I think that argument is somewhat complicated by recent lawsuits, including one that has been filed against the New York Times, which alleges that even on the output side, apparently through some 
prompt engineering that the lawyers for the Times did, what they were able to get the AI to do was to generate entire news articles that replicated word for word New York Times articles that have been published. And so if that's true, then certainly you would say, well, the work that's generated by the AI is a direct infringement. And moreover, maybe even the ingestion of the copyrighted work into the language model is also an infringement that is not protected by fair use because it is ingested for the purpose of directly competing with the plaintiff, the author's income streams, and is likely to harm the market for plaintiff's work. Now, there's a twist to the Carlin case. Because after the lawsuit was filed, a spokeswoman for the podcasters said this was not actually created by AI. Quote, it's a fictional podcast created by two human beings, Will Sasso and Chad Colchin. The YouTube video, I'm Glad I'm Dead, was completely written by Chad. So, surprise, surprise, they're saying it's not AI. So, if that's true, then, of course, if the material was entirely written by Chad, and if the voice is just an imitation, so focusing first on the co- on the copyright claims, so then the copyright claim is, is gone because you have fully original material that's been written by the comedian himself. And then on the right of publicity, the, the voice imitation, the thing that has always complicated this right of publicity claim is that even if it were an AI that was actually spitting out George Carlin's voice and not some voice imitation, the right of publicity claim was always complicated by the fact that this is a comedy special. This is an expressive work. And right of publicity claims typically have found that such expressive works are protected by the First Amendment. Right of publicity is slightly different from copyright, but both share this idea, right, that there are certain uses that are defensible, even if we might consider them technical uses of a celebrity's image or technically copying of copyrighted content. So in the right of publicity context, It's clear that the use of a celebrity's image or the use of a celebrity's voice in a commercial is a violation of a celebrity's right of publicity. But when we're talking about something that's an expressive work, like a comedy routine, for example, then most courts have held that that is expression that is protected by the First Amendment, that comedians should be able to, for example, make some commentary about celebrities by imitating them, by maybe even exactly reproducing their voice by exactly reproducing their image on some type of parody, such as a newspaper parody that uses a celebrity's image. So expressive works get really broad leeway under right of publicity law, and that's why the right of publicity claim is always going to be much harder to vindicate than the copyright claim. Will you explain sort of how close a comedian can get to George Carlin's work in a new work? So, of course, assuming that the comedian himself wrote the skit, then even if it's in the style of or the same manner of jokes, so long as the expression is wholly different, so long as the comedic routine is not an exact duplication, word for word, or very close paraphrasing even, of a George Carlin routine, but instead maybe takes the idea of a George Carlin joke and expands upon it, takes the style of his comedic humor and expands upon it, that is all fair game under copyright law. And you wouldn't even need to bring in the fair use doctrine at all. You would just say, I'm only taking the unprotectable ideas 
I'm not copying the protectable expression of George Carlin's comedy routine. A lawyer for Carlin's estate says the lawsuit is going ahead despite this new claim by the defendants. Quote, we don't know what they're saying to be true. What we will know is that they'll be deposed, they'll produce documents, and there'll be evidence that shows one way or another how the show was created. So full speed ahead. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, of course, lawyers say these things. This stunt generated a lot of publicity. It's unclear how much money was actually generated from this. And even if some amount of evidence is willingly produced that shows that there was actually no copyrighted works that were ingested into any kind of LLM, then the potential damages that the plaintiff can receive just basically evaporate. So in that case, the parties will probably settle or the plaintiff will voluntarily dismiss the lawsuit. To bring a lawsuit like this all the way to the trial or fact-finding stage where there are depositions and there's discovery is an incredibly costly endeavor. And if what the comedians are saying is true, it would behoove them to or would do them well to immediately try to ward off that expensive fact-finding by producing some amount of evidence to show that, in fact, there was no AI training involved. And certainly, I think that's been the complaint against a lot of this training data that's been fed into the LLMs is the very opacity of the system and that it's never clear since the plaintiff has no visibility into what the defendant is doing, what their process was, what materials were actually fed into the LLM. This is true not just of the comedians, but of course of large companies like OpenAI. How are you to figure out what OpenAI was training their LLMs on? It's all proprietary. That's been always one of the big complaints from the plaintiffs. And so in those cases, you want discovery to force the company to produce evidence. But in this case, these are two individual comedians. You know, I think the amount of money at stake is vanishingly small if they are able to produce some evidence that this material was wholly original written content. Now that the initial furor is over and the AI claims have been taken back, we'll see if the lawsuit gets dismissed. Thanks for joining me on the show. That's Professor Zian Tang of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.